close out First Peter, and it's a closing call uh, to the church. Peter wrapping up and giving a cry to the elders, to the people, and to the church as a whole. Uh, I put down as an introduction that I like watching sports, but I'm really a casual fan. Uh, I'm in and out, I'm really there for the snacks. Uh, but I become intently engaged when the game gets exciting, uh, when things are close and the battle is intense. Because at that point, you start noticing uh, the laser focus on the field, how, how the players are zeroed in. You can feel almost the passion and intensity of all the players and coaches, and you watch everyone playing their part and fulfilling their role. They're playing as a team in a unique way. Uh, one of my favorite football games was Super Bowl 42 on February 3rd, 2008. Uh, the undefeated New England Patriots versus uh, the barely there New York Giants. Uh, the Patriots were favored to win, and they take the lead with less than three minutes uh, to go. I remember this game because at the end, and I'm, again, not the most passionate person at times for sports, but I was literally on the ground with excitement uh, because it's the best football ever, in my opinion, especially if you're not a Patriots fan, and I was not at the time. Uh, all kudos to Tom Brady, just not a fan of his. So I was watching the Patriots go, and I'm always rooting for an underdog. And I was watching Eli Manning was the quarterback for the Giants. He goes in in the last three minutes, and he marches down the field with some of the most extravagant plays to end up winning the game. And when you watch the offense play and you watch uh, one of the second or third last plays, he gets out of, I think, four tackles, which is not his MO as a quarterback. And you watch him throw something, and it just was mind-boggling. I watched some replays of this. And what really struck me is watching one of the New York Giants' defensive greats talking on the sidelines as their offense goes on to take the field. And he's giving a pep talk because they're down at this moment, 14 to 10. And what fascinated me is there he's standing on the sideline as the offense is taking the field, getting all of the team. They're not going out necessarily to be in the play, but he kept saying, this game ends at 17-14. 17-14. And if you can do the math, if they scored a touchdown, that would give the Giants 17-14. to 14. He was looking at a tough sell, but he wanted them, the whole team, to be intently focused, all the energy, all the focus in the right direction. He wanted the whole team keyed up for a very specific victory. If you're not into football, the Giants do win. The Patriots' undefeated season is destroyed. Uh, and again, if you love the Patriots, I apologize to you slightly. Uh, but if you love an underdog, that just was amazing to me. Still love that uh, game. As we come to the close of this letter, we see that Peter knows there's a battle raging. And that's the connect for me as I watch teams at times come out. They know they're in a battle. They know that the stakes are high. They know they have to put everything into it. And here, Peter is kind of closing out this letter, knowing that a battle is raging. He's been talking about it, and he's zeroing in, and he knows it's a serious one, and he knows it's going to require their focus and energy. It requires our focus and energy. It will require the church to function as designed, as a team, as, God, as Christ's body, as his family, striving as God has directed us. And in light of that, Peter gives now closing instructions for all of us in the church, a closing call to the church, the church that belongs to Christ. And he begins with his pastors, verses one through four. The elders which are among you, I exhort, 
who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. <coughs> and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Peter, though, does not begin speaking here from an elevated position. He had one. He was an apostle. He had walked with Christ. He was given special gifts that he could be used. But when he addresses the church, he calls to them from the position of an elder. And he calls to the other pastors and elders of the church, linking to Christ's suffering, which he saw firsthand, which he's referenced throughout the letter. And remind you of this, it wasn't Peter's shining moment when Christ died. Peter failed the Lord at that moment. And then he says, I'm someone looking forward, like you, to future glory. Wayne Gruden notes this, Peter is an elder who has sinned, repented, been restored, and will share with Christ in glory. And it's from that position that he calls to the pastors of Christ's church to be caring. Feed or shepherd Christ's flock. Shepherd the sheep of God. And so as he gives a closing call to the church, he's going to zero out those in leadership and he's going to talk to how the congregation should respond. And then the bulk of his close is actually going to be all to all of us collectively. But he starts with the pastors, the elders, the leaders, and he says that that is a stewardship bestowed by God, not something owned by pastors. Yet the feeding or the tending of the people cannot only be what people want. Instead, it needs to be what is needed to grow them in Christ. The feeding must be to edify and strengthen in deep truths. Pastors are to care for growth, not ease. Pastors are to comfort people, but comfort them in Christ. They are to prod them forward in truth, not for popularity not because it's the easiest thing to do. We are commanded to feed, to care for God's sheep. As an under-shepherd, I put here, as one of the sheep, because we also must be leading, but the call is not to the leadership that the world typically looks at. This is a call to servant leadership. Willingly, it says, it's a privilege and not a burden. No one should be pressured into serving as an elder, pushed or coerced or guilted. Why? Because it is a calling to be filled voluntarily. It should be their heart's desire. Pastors must be motivated to serve and work in the church and not need constant prodding or even praise and acknowledgement. Something is amiss if we pastors need to be thought the busiest or hardest working of all people. Instead, our calling should be our passion and we're to be motivated by it and not by the fires of our complaining. I say this because Peter wrote this. This is the accountability we're supposed to have to be willing to dive in, to recognize that it's a privilege that we serve under the chief shepherd, that we are still sheep filling a role in Christ's church. The work of an elder must be done selflessly, as an opportunity to serve and not for position, power, or wealth. The heart of pastor's leadership should be centered on being exemplary. We're a model and not a dictator. 
Third John speaks of a guy named Diotrephes who loved the preeminence, a sure sign of unbiblical leadership. If any pastor in any church you're in or involved in loves the preeminence and has that type of air about them, understand that the leadership provided by them is unbiblical leadership. He's reprimanded by the Apostle John, really by the Holy Spirit, for his unexemplary life and actions. Elders must lead as an example, not as self-consumed dictators. Their life must shine and be worth copying. Too many times, though, they say, this is my life, and because I'm a pastor, you should copy it. And what Peter is saying is, you need to have a life that's worth copying, copying, and it needs to be a life of servant leadership. That call to live a life worthy of emulating, worth copying, is not an option for pastors or elders or leaders. It is a crucial part of the responsibility. It is the calling that we're given. And in all of this, pastors must be focused. This is the idea of verse 4, serving for the right reasons. And that reason is not temporal. It is eternal. Peter doesn't promise ministry personnel or people that they'll receive accolades and elevation here on earth. Instead, the promises are eternal rewards given by God to his faithful servants. Too many pastors are seeking the crowns of today so much so that they forfeit the true crowns of eternity. As a church, you might say, Kenny, great. You and Theron better listen and pay attention to your little sermon to you guys. But the reality is this, as you look at the functioning of a church and the responsibilities that are there, as a church, you're to hold your pastors and elders accountable to seek the right reward, to understand that as leaders, we are seeking to serve Christ, not this world. We're not seeking the accolades and praise of man, but instead to be servants of our Lord and Savior. Something worth emulating because God calls all of his people to be servants of their Lord and Savior. Peter knows that they will face persecution, pressure, lies, and attacks. We must face that suffering, that pressure and pain as the church of Christ, as his bride, as he desires. That requires those entrusted as his under shepherds to function as servant leaders of his flock, caring, leading, and focusing the church on eternity and striving for eternal rewards. Our goal is Christ. Our goal is to hear from him, well done, my good and faithful servant, and not be consumed with the flattery of this world and life. That is where we are to be leading and where the church should follow. Because as Peter gives the closing call to Christ's elders, pastors, leaders, he has a reminder for his people. That's verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, and I'm going to note this, Peter highlights the young men. Younger is referring to the men specifically. And I say that because young men typically are the ones that like to buck structure and authority and God's design. He's not excluding anyone. He's just Peter, and he's going to go right to the point on who's going to struggle the most with this, submit yourself unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. His call to his people is to be following. It is submission by all the church to the authority of the church as God has directed. Even as leaders of the church, we are to submit to the authority of the church. 
That's how God designed it. It's addressed specifically to young men, those who struggle the most following God's structure and plan, yet includes everyone. How is that accomplished? How does that work? How in the world can we all be submitted to the authority of the local church, pastors and people included all together through biblical humility? By the way, a despised characteristic in ancient times, yet necessary for all his people, shepherds and flock, so that his church functions as God desires, so his church is the testimony of the world of the gospel that needs to be proclaimed. Peter's call is for all of us to be wrapped, clothed in humility. That means fully clothed. And the the point is, it's not humility that you turn on when you're in the church or turn on when you're around church people. But boy, when you enter your job, you got to be super arrogant and and you get, I got to push out. I got to step out. This humility is to be our clothing. It is to be who we are. And I say biblical humility, which humility has been misconstrued to be a doormat. That's not what it's talking about. It is, is approaching things without that worldly pride, recognizing that God is in opposition to the proud, yet he works graciously through the humble. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen states this, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, speaking of God, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And what Isaiah is saying, God who is far above anyone and anything at any time and any age of this world, the highest of highest dwells, he says, in the heavens above all and he dwells with the humble. In other words, the humble are drawn up to be with him in glory, not the proud that fight for their status. Humility is a standard for the church. And so Peter continues with that theme, humility, as he zeroes in on Christ or his possession. And I'm speaking here of verses 6 through 14. And what he means by that is the whole of God's church and the characteristics he wants to see in it, the characteristics he wants to see growing in us. So Peter starts this final call to the church And he splits it out briefly. He says, elders, pastors, this is how you're to act. And he gives a pretty straightforward representation of servant leadership, of willing leadership, of a lack of pride, of a need to be an example. And then he says to the people, let's be following good examples. Let's all be striving to be Christ-like and to function as Christ wants the church to function, closing out with ye all, and that means everyone, pastors and people, living in humility. Then Peter shifts now, and he's starting to talk about characteristics that he expects of everyone in the church, and he stays on the theme of humility. Now, it's critical that as we look through 6 to 14, we understand what Peter is pushing the church to do. And he's telling the church, all of us, to grow, to become more like Christ, to constantly take in truth, to actually absorb his truth. As Proverbs 23, 7 states of humanity, for as he, speaking of people, thinketh in his heart, so is he. As you absorb truth 
it will change you or it's supposed to change you. It's supposed to alter you. It's supposed to make you into something that is not necessarily you. It's to move your heart from selfish interest to Christ-like interest. As we learn truth, as that truth changes our disposition, we then apply that truth to our life, shaping us into his likeness. But it has to be shaped by God's word and by God's truth. And so Peter encourages a church to be shaped in that way, to react like Christ. And he begins again with that counterpart to pride, the call to be humble. Anytime something's repeated in Scripture, everything in Scripture is important. If someone takes the energy to repeat it, you know that it's being emphasized. When Peter goes back to back from talking about his people to everyone being humble to, by the way, God wants you to be humble, you get an idea that God expects his people to be humble. So verse 6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humility... And this is critical to understand this. This is how it's possible for us, is a response to God and who he is. The mighty hand speaks of God's sovereign power at work, and it speaks of his authority. Peter connects our humility to the correct person, our God. If you're in a church and humility is demanded of you in the context of bowing in a in a worldly way to leadership, you recognize that leadership has connected humility to the wrong person. Humility is connected to God and who he is. And Peter, make sure you understand, it is the mighty hand of God. We submit to God. Therefore, we submit to his structure and to the authority of the church because of who God is, not of who we are. And so we understand to whom we're being humble. And in that submission, we are confident that at the appropriate time, and he's not necessarily pointing straight to eternity, God will lift us up in whatever manner that unfolds. Peter is not predicting how that's going to happen in their life. He is just telling them, you humble yourself before God, and God lifts you up at the time appropriate for his purpose and his will. Yet, This call to be humble is not a call for you to handle it yourself, to be confident in yourself or in your calling. Instead, from humility, we're called to be trusting, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And this is a call to place our care, and that word for care is is a word for anxiety. Place our anxiety, and as one writer notes, anxiety encompasses all of our discontentment, discouragement, despair, questioning, pain, suffering, and whatever other trials, all of that is entrusted to him. We don't hold on to it. And that doesn't mean that you're living life. You're like, yeah, whatever. God cares for me. I don't care. And we're floating around like nothing matters. It is that we don't allow those cares to be carried by ourselves, that we actually trust him. And when you're trusting God to carry your anxiety, and I love that the author that I'm reading said discontentment because we struggle with that in our world, don't we? We place that on him, not because suddenly we understand or it makes sense to us. Trusting him is when we can't wrap our mind around it and we say, I'm trusting him with that in my life. 
It's a call to place it on him. We don't hold on to it. We instead place it upon him, knowing he cares as the only true shepherd could for us. And Peter is zeroing in for the church individually. So not just collectively as the body of Christ, but he says, as the church, we place our care, trust God with our, with our struggles and whatever those may be lumped in anxiety. And he says, you trust it to him and he cares for you individually. And it's critical that our trust is in him, that we submit to him because we have an adversary that is on the hunt. Our adversary, the devil, who moves around like a lion seeking to destroy. And so Peter continues, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I remember watching a movie based on the true story of two man-eating lions in Africa, And of course, the movie takes many liberties when you read the true history. But I watched this when I was a teenager in the theater, and it 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 scared me to death. Um, I don't like scary movies. Uh, Lions that plagued work crews building the railroad back in the early 1900s, taking place mainly near the Savo River. Uh, These lions, based on DNA search of their stomachs in today's age, they say at least killed 35 people not to mention livestock. They wreaked havoc on the construction of a bridge and even the railroad in that region, extending out, I think, almost 100 miles. A British colonel named John Henry Patterson was moved from India to Africa, tasked with building the bridge, and he's the one that ended up killing both of the lions. But not after much time was lost and loss of resources and people. Without sharing all the details, these lions would bypass traps that... Colonel Patterson set for them and start hunting him while he was hunting them. They stole people out of the hospital tent, even when they moved the hospital tent around. And on one occasion, consumed a victim 30 yards from camp, which is not the norm. Uh, They were killers seeking who they could devour, striking fear into the hearts of all. And they were named by the people, the ghosts, the darkness was their name. Uh, They're on display at the Field Museum in Chicago. Don't go expecting to see lions with manes on them. They're maneless male lions, most likely young, again, wreaking havoc uh, in the world around them. But here's the point. To defend against and defeat that type of predator requires vigilance, requires control of your emotions, requires firmness, and it is that type of predator that Satan is compared to. I share that story not to scare everyone here about lions, but to help you understand when Peter is talking about lions, he's not talking about the thing that roars at the zoo behind a cage that you can wave to because there's a big moat of water and it's so lazy now it barely stands up. No, he's talking about lions that are wicked killers that, have, that, have, that, are, that are messed up. They're, not, they're beyond what nature normally has them doing that are seeking to devour. And the idea is to destroy. That's the word there. And when you face that type of predator, now you understand that you need to have or you must be sober. This is something he's told us in the chapter before. It's the same meaning. Be self-controlled. Be balanced in life. 
In other words, you're called to order life, disciplining your mind and body to avoid being pulled into this world and its emotions, to avoid being sucked into its passions. The church through the last three years got sucked into the world's passions. And there's so many churches that seem to understand and rightly divide the word of truth that you can't trust anymore. You can't trust certain pastors that used to write. Why? They got sucked into the world's passions and the world's take on life. They were not sober. They lacked self-control. Then Peter continues stating emphatically, be vigilant. There's a lion loose that's out to devour meaning out to destroy you. And it's not a time to become indifferent to that reality, nor the time to indulge in sin. If you're indulging in sin while the Satan is out to devour, it's like being on watch to hunt man-eating lions and falling asleep, which as a hunter, I did often. I never killed anything. And I just want everyone to know, neither did Cody this weekend, even though he camped out and tried his best. I, just, I was looking for a chance to weave that in and it just suddenly hit me. For a chance to go after Cody. Uh, I can't talk too much because I go shooting with him and I've shot bow and arrow and he can attest to how many arrows I've ruined missing the target completely. But either way, you didn't kill nothing, buddy. And so I just wanted, I wanted everyone to know that that was my chance. Sorry, rabbit trail there, uh, deer trail. But according to Cody, there's no deer in the woods anymore. So sorry, Virginia, we've lost all the deer. Um, either way, that was my chance. Sorry. Um, it's no time to fall asleep in the stand as we're watching. And vigilance is not being aware of danger, by the way. It's actively looking out for it. Because I say be vigilant, and most of the times when I read that verse, I'm like, I'm vigilant. I'm aware. I know this information. It's not knowing information. It's actively involved in watching, seeing, hunting against it. That activity is seen in our personal study of God's word, in prayer, in faithful worship. It's seen in pursuing opportunities to learn and grow, not having to be coaxed to them. It means those things are priorities, not possibilities in your life. And sadly, the church in America views them as improbabilities. Take a minute, and this is designed to be reflective and convicting. Take a minute and examine your own personal Bible reading and study. How many days did you read scripture this past week and for how long? And don't tell me because I don't want to confess all my sins to you either, but think through it a second. Honestly, how many days did you read God's word and how long? How about just yesterday? Take a minute to examine if worship is truly a priority or is it just a tradition? How about whether you're capitalizing or prioritizing opportunities to study and fellowship at your local church, to learn more about God's word, to be in prayer, to be accountable? Take a minute, pause for a second, ask yourself that question. And again, I'm saying this from a convicted standpoint as well. Take a minute and think about that. And here's what that tells you. That answer will tell you how vigilant you are. I don't need to hear from you, oh, I'm vigilant. That word doesn't matter at all. Vigilance will be seen in how you study God's word. Vigilance will see in the priority of worship and growing together as a church and the priority of prayer. That is where vigilance is seen because the devil is a roaring lion seeking to destroy. And we're called to be strong. That's what verse nine is saying. Resist him, firm in the faith. 
And the suffering and persecution we face will be a weapon that Satan employs to discourage and deflate us. He will attempt to crumble the very foundation of our faith, even trying to erode our trust in God. And we're encouraged to put up a fight and win. It's not give it the old college try, it's be victorious. It's a call to take a firm stand against the devil and the schemes he uses to wreck our faith. Fight fervently against his lies and deception and be victorious in Christ. And by the way, just as a side note, that's not you calling out Satan and pretending you have his power. God sends the highest archangel to battle Satan. We don't have that power in ourselves. You battle Satan through God's word. Christ exemplified that in his life on earth when he faced temptation directly from Satan. And what did he answer Satan with? God's word. You only answer Satan with God's word. That's all you have. And it's mighty and it's powerful, but don't get duped into thinking you call him out. You don't want to call him out. You don't have that power. But we're not to be swayed by Satan to doubt God. Instead, we're called to be expectant, which is hope-filled. And we see that in verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you, will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The God of eternal grace provides the grace for today. And though we suffer, he assures us that he will make us perfect which means whole and complete. It doesn't mean sinless. It just means complete. There's this idea of wholeness. If you go to Leviticus, if you're here on Wednesday, you understand that wholeness depicts holiness. That was the way to drive or move the the nation of Israel to see the holiness of God. And so he's going to give us his wholeness. He's going to establish us, which means to set fast or really confirm us He will strengthen, meaning to make sturdy. This is the accomplishing what is needed to defend against the devouring adversary. Be strong. And then he says, be expectant for God to give you that strength. He will establish you means to lay the foundation. As MacArthur notes, these terms all connote strength and immovability, which God wants for all believers as they face the spiritual battle. He sets them firmly on the truth of divine revelation where they stand in faith and confidence until they realize their eternal glory. As we face our adversary, we can do so expectantly, knowing our Lord and Savior has promised to enable us and finish the work he has begun in us. And so Peter turns our attention with that big movement to see who Satan is and how we have to battle him to this idea that we have hope. We can win and should win because Christ enables us. And so his focus for the church is all the way back to our Lord God. And he reminds us to be glorifying, be worshipful, because to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Where does your focus land ultimately? Where does everything culminate? Right there back at Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter then wraps up his letter with greetings from the person transcribing it, Silvanus or Silas, and the church where Peter is ministering. He says the church of Babylon, that was a cover so that if the letter was found, it wouldn't cause persecution to the church that is in Rome. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son, greet you one another with a kiss of charity, peace with you, 
all that are in Christ Jesus, amen. And in these closing remarks, we see a call to be faithful. Well, how is Sylvanus described? Faithful. And we understand that what is contained in this letter is the true grace of God, wherein ye stand. You are to be faithful to what God has said, to what God has promised, to the truths embodied in his word. Remain true to the truths of God's word. And then Peter closes with a greeting from the church in Rome, which connects them. Remember he said that you have brethren that are in the world that are also suffering for Christ. And it's a reminder to them of the care of other believers for them. Here is a church in Rome that is at the heart of the coming persecution, by the way. They're going to feel the first fires. Actually, they're going to be fired up by Nero, lit alive to light his gardens as he shifts the blame of his crazy plan to burn Rome down so he can rebuild it pretty. And he just blames the Christians who were easy scapegoats. That church that's about to face all of that, they're sending their love to this church or these churches in Asia Minor. And so they're reminded to do the same and be loving. Peter ends this first letter with a closing call to the church, addressing every part of the church. To the elders, be caring and leading the flock, focused on eternal rewards, focused on what Christ thinks of their service, not humanity. To the flock, be following, submitting to the care and authority of the local church, humbly following the structure God has ordained so that we testify collectively, clearly of his gospel. And to every one of us collectively, be humble, be trusting, be sober, be vigilant, be strong, be expectant, be glorifying, be faithful, and be loving. We must be the church that God has called us to be. We must diligently pursue the characteristics he calls us to have so that we are used for his purpose, for his glory, proclaiming his most wonderful gospel message. Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together as we walk through uh, this final portion of Peter's letter uh, to the churches in Asia Minor. We recognize that you're writing through him, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a letter for us. And this is a closing call to the church, a call that we need to listen to, to make sure that as your church, we're functioning here in Culpeper as you designed us to function, that as leaders, we are servant leaders, that we provide a life that is worth following, a life that points to you, that glorifies you, that is focused on what you think of what we are doing and not what the world thinks. As a church, we're following that example seeking to honor our Lord and Savior, seeking to testify of what you have done. And then these lists of characteristics in which we need to see growth. I hope that as we review 1 Peter 5 and as we walk through 6 through 14, that we start seeing areas where we need to make a change. If we're struggling in reading scripture, we make changes to read your word and study it. If we can't seem to overcome, we recognize that there's help in the church, that there's people to hold you accountable, to help you walk through, to help you understand. If we're struggling with a lack of self-control, a lack of balance, that will make changes. Lord, convict our hearts individually of what needs to change so as a church we can grow together and be the light that you've called us to be in this place and at this time. In your precious and holy name, amen.